You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. This episode of Monster Talk deals with explicit legends, some of which are of a sexual nature. You may want to skip this one if you're with the kids or if you don't like hearing disturbing things. To paraphrase the band REO Speedwagon, I heard it from a friend who heard it from a friend who heard it from another that a hook-handed killer almost nabbed a couple at a makeout point just a few years ago. You know, thanks to sites like Snopes.com and, hopefully, to the work by the good people at Skeptic Magazine and the unaffiliated but similarly focused Skeptical Inquirer magazine, it's very easy nowadays to find out whether mysterious stories are true or not. And while we frequently looked into the veracity of such tales on Monster Talk, we spent very little time looking at the actual study of folklore. Until now. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. Folklore is something we're all aware of, yet seem to know little about. As we've mentioned before, in many ways, we're all creatures of story. The narratives we weave about ourselves tell us where we stand in our society. The narratives others weave about us dictate the level of esteem and derision in which we are held by those around us. But we always seem to need stories besides these. Stories with meanings and symbols. Stories which help define our society itself. Folklore looks at these stories, captures them, and helps contextualize them. And a lot of those stories involve monsters. It's time for some... Monster Talk. Heather Joseph Witham is an associate professor at the Otis College of Art and Design in Los Angeles. She has a PhD in folklore and mythology from UCLA and has has been seen on many television shows discussing urban legends, including the first two seasons of Mythbusters. Welcome to Monster Talk! (laughs) We've talked about folklore and urban legends and a lot of things about that that field without actually having anyone with the expertise uh, from an academic perspective on the show. Yeah, I think pretty much every show we mention something to do with folklore, but yeah. we haven't spoken with a folklorist. It's, it, we're, we're both uh, sort of uh, 
capital S skeptics, but and as such, we, we kind of have become uh, quite adept at identifying things that aren't true, uh-huh. uh, but that's not really the same thing as studying folklore. So could you kind of describe what that is as an academic field and how it's different yeah. from just reading legends, right? Yeah, no, I mean, it's more than legends. You know, I um, am also somewhat of a skeptic, depending on the day of the week. Um, and in fact, I actually have all my students read Carl Sagan's uh, article on skepticism, which kind of urges them to keep a somewhat jaundiced eye while still maintaining an open mind about everything in the universe. Um, but anyways, yeah, I mean, your show's about monsters. So it, it, as far as I'm concerned, monsters are folklore. So there's kind of no way for you to escape it. But I think the difference probably between me and you is you. it sounds like you are looking at um, – maybe the veracity of some of the narratives and experiences. And I wouldn't necessarily look at things to see if they're true or false. Rather, I usually look at things to see how they function for people. So a folklorist is someone who um, is an academic discipline that we look at folklore, we look at mythology, but we don't just look at um, narratives. Narratives are one genre of folklore. And uh, within that, you know, you might look at, jokes, proverbs, myths, fairy tales, urban legends, rumors, goodness, keep going, you know, internet-driven narratives. Um, But there's also a ton of other genres. My favorite is probably folk religion, folk belief. I like looking at superstition. Some people might uh, work on folk art, vernacular art, they might call it, or any number of things. It sounds like Um, everything that would come up at my family reunion. (laughs) (laughs) It's all the good stuff you guys. All the fun stuff, for sure. So, So how is folklore different to history then? Um, You know, in some ways, all the humanities are connected and they're all going to, um, they all have similar origins of thought and philosophy. And they're all really ultimately, you know, I like to say really, it almost doesn't matter what kind of class you take or what your major is, because really you are gaining... um, research skills and and critical thinking skills and ultimately that's what all of that is about but for me folklore um is not solely here's here's a difference so um i wrote my dissertation on my family i think i got into this to look into aspects of my family originally and then i got that out of my system and moved on but um one of the stories i recorded was about my family's immigrant experience going from uh Baghdad to, um, to India. And, um, you know, what you read in the, if you look in the history book, you'll see there was this particular, uh, head of the town who didn't like the Jews there. And so, um, he was sort of ghettoizing them and, uh, increasing their taxes. So that would be history. So oral history, which would be part of folklore, which is grandma's story, or my, actually my great-grandma's story, was that um, they were taking all the men and putting them on the front lines of the army, and they were all dying rather rapidly. And so what they and about half the community did was they pooled all their money and bribed some captain on some boat, dressed all the men as women, and had them take them to India. Wow. Uh, where it was very easy to be Jewish at that time until post-World War II um, because, uh, of, well, for a variety of reasons, uh, India 
has at times been very open to uh, different belief systems. So they, they didn't care. So, you know, that, that would be the difference, I think, between the history and the oral history or the folklore. And I think that goes with every single genre you're looking at. Most of the time, historians aren't going to look at an urban legend to see what it means and how it's functioning in society. They will look at um, uh, the facts of what occurred, or they hope they will. That also depends on, on their perspective. So that's why you have history books that look at the same event in totally different ways. So oh, Okay, so you'd say that folklore is important to history? It's, for me, it's important to everything. So sometimes okay. folklore can be unofficial history, but it's also, um, you know, it's the written stuff. A lot of people, as soon as you say fairy tales or whatever, they think folklore, and indeed that is, but folklore is also really um, about the way that people behave and why they do what they do, which are very important questions. And so, you know, whether they're doing um, some kind of dance or song or branding or tattoo or piercing or um, making, uh, uh, creating graffiti, whatever they're doing has meaning and it's worthy of, of looking at and analyzing and trying to understand why people are doing it. So we're, we're a field that's based in what we call field work. Um, or some people call it ethnography. It's the same thing. It got, it's got its name because early on in, in the field, 18th, 19th century, people had a view of folklore as something belonging to the rural people, the peasants, um, the people out there, not you who are studying in your vast library, um, in Western Europe, it was, they thought that it was, you know, the, the property of either the other, the exotic people or the, um, the peasants, cause they thought they were closer to nature. So literally they would go out to the fields to interview people, um, and bother them while they were trying to work. So that's why it started. It was called field work from from its origins, you know, but it was, it was a funny, um, kind of way to research. It was the idea that yes, you only really got the best information, the most important information from people face to face. And I still agree with that. And I make all my students do field work all the time. But, um, at the time it was, you know, a super elitist and really arrogant concept that, you know, only we can analyze what you have and we'll right, collect right. It somewhere else. And now the, the idea is not that. Now the folk is everyone because mm-hmm. if you have culture, you are part of the folk and the lore is what you do or what you believe or what you create. So it's changed obviously over the years, but those were the origins. So, but I'm thinking about, um, that would include things like the Brothers Grimm and, but also maybe like the, the, with the, with the folk music categorization and collection that was happening in the sixties, is that also part of that? That would be part of it. Um, people that I know don't necessarily—I don't actually know anyone who would who collects folk music. I do know people who collect um, spoken word poetry, wow, um, uh, protest songs, stuff like that. So it's sort of whatever's going on now. Um, but yeah, that association with the stuff people used to do earlier in the past century is still there for sure. I think okay. uh, my, my introduction probably was through uh, Jan Harald Brunvon or. Not- yeah, Jan Harald Brunvon, yeah, great, yeah. Uh, great folklorist. Um, he came out to one of the conferences I held at my college a few years ago. And I just found him to be delightful, and he's written so many books. And his thing is urban legends. I I can't say that I have one thing that I do because that changes every month. But um, <laughs> stuck stuck to it, and he is a master, um, and such a great writer too. You know, his his work is really illuminating. 
So, Bob, you mentioned urban legends. What is an urban legend? An urban legend? Well, an urban legend is um, folk history, folk news, um, concerns of the folk, rumors, things that people have to say. They have stories to tell about things that are um, of concern to the community. They may or may not be true, but certainly they are embellished. They are generally told with authority. Um, in other words, you may have a friend of a friend telling it. Um, uh, you know, I never say my friend's friend's friend worked at the hospital. <laughs> and you just say, I hurt my friend's mom. Mm-hmm. So you always keep cutting it out and they're, you're closer to authority. They tend to have a lot of specificity of detail. They often have circumstantial evidence to bolster them. Um, first, second, third hand accounts. Um, but even sometimes with the names, the dates, the people, they tend to have a certain kind of anonymity. So um, let's say uh, some of the stories that are true, like the mouse and the Coke bottle. They were like, someone did an article once about the amount of lawsuits about things in Coke bottles, you know, from fingers to rings and cockroaches and stuff like that. So the mouse and the Coke bottle is probably a true narrative, but you don't know who it happened to or when or why it happened. You just heard that someone found a mouse in a Coke bottle. So it's still an urban legend, even though there may be elements of, uh, or if it even happened somewhere. Then you hear that about Kentucky Fried Chicken as well, and Wendy's Chili. And rats, you bet. I mean, those, those contamination stories are—they've been around, you know, forever, and they're gaining traction because we are finding disgusting things in our food. And I, in my ice cream, there was a fingernail a few weeks ago. Oh. I mean, packaged ice. <laughs> so. And we, we we work to protect ourselves from contamination, you know, individually and communally. It's horrible. We know that people aren't washing their hands as they're cooking or they're in a factory losing fingernails. You know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you didn't get your ice cream from like Manny's Tin Flavors, right? But- uh, I want to I know where it is, but I think we should ask. <laughs> well, no, you, you no made- <laughs> yeah, I'm good. <laughs> you made me wonder, though, so... I remember recently, uh, not not too many years ago, there was um, a case where there was allegedly a mouse found in a Mountain Dew, and and there was apparently a mouse, and it was taken into court, and uh, and and they found that it wasn't possible that it had been stored in the Mountain Dew, um, and I found that really interesting because is that a, a stinchin? Is that is that what that is? It, Ooh, you've been doing homework. Yeah. <laughs> He always does. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's totally ostension. Ostension is the idea that um, people um, take a a real-life action based on their belief in some kind of narrative, which happens all the time, from the stuff that you buy to what you eat to where, you know, if you choose not to go to Kentucky Fried Chicken or get a Mountain Dew, then you are, you know, in an ostension. But, I mean, or it could be much, much worse, like the blood libel legend where – People truly, that was the story where people believe that Jews, you know, use the uh, blood of a good Christian child, boy, usually, uh, to make their matzah at Passover. So, you know, the belief in the narrative was so strong, um, goodness, Middle Ages all the way through 19th century, that ostension occurred. There were, there's uh, historical accounts of entire villages or ghettos being burned or, you know, 52 people being hung or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Even if the kid came back because he was visiting his friend Joe, 
in the neighboring village, you know, the damage was already done. So Ascension, you know, while, while it's fun to think we're not just, you know, going to go to Kentucky Fried Chicken, which I generally advise anyway, um, <laughs> it, can be, it can be far more dangerous than that. I, I was fascinated by the that particular one, the the Mountain Dew one, I, I, and actually by coincidence, around the same time we had a mouse get in our house, and I Ew. I have to admit I I did an experiment where I I set out a trap, I, I got the mouse, and I put it into a clear jar with Mountain Dew and left it for thirty days with a time lapse photograph thing going. So I made a little movie, and it does not actually dissolve. So yeah, I can. You are weed. Oh, you know what, Karen? It was science. It was basically science. <laughs> so do you think it would have dissolved in coke because they did so many experiments on that and things do dissolve in there oh, well i would tell you that it is essentially liquefied and sadly i still have it in my basement excellent <laughs> now you can have to do it all over again with coke well i think it would become i think it's uh it, it got rather cloudy um so i don't i don't know you know i i we haven't ever had another mouse i've been here for 16 years and we've only had the one so Yay, I guess. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> I, I mean, I was going to get rid of the mouse anyway. It wasn't like it was a pet and I just, you know, took it out and brutally, t- you know. I may edit all of this out. <laughs> well, I hope it wasn't a pet and I certainly hope it wasn't a shape changer. Since right. Yeah, that's a good point. First. A good point. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. Although I don't know. That's my only problem with shape changing. Where does the mask go? Shouldn't you have to turn into something with the exact mass that you have? Yeah, that's the same problem with uh, a lot of the stuff that happens in Marvel Comics. I mean, where does the Hulk get his mass when he becomes, you know, not Bruce Banner? It's a really good question. Yeah, yeah so. I never thought about it in terms of the Hulk, but now I will every time I see it. <laughs> Forever. From what you're saying, uh, urban legends change over time and they change across cultures. Sure. Um yeah, I mean, it just depends on what the concerns of the community are. So I think the first time I heard the, you know, the the gerbil in the anus story was in, and I, and I remember where that's, I That's when our podcast really kicks into gear. Go ahead. That's, that, was, that was Richard Gear too, wasn't it? I, no, because I heard it first. It was an anonymous guy in San Francisco General. Oh, wow. Okay. And then I heard it attached to Richard Gere a good six, seven, eight years later. So it was a narrative that was within the gay community. And then it hit, you know, sort of mainstream communities and got attached to Richard Gere. Why Richard Gere? My thought process was, well, he's good looking. Um, He's aloof. He's got a gazillion dollars. Um, He's meant to be in the closet as well. And, but, and he's meant to be in the closet. But why do we care if he's in the closet? Clearly, at that time, being gay was a problem. So societally, we had an issue with that. Therefore, we're ascribing someone we're totally jealous of um, gayness. Now, I would say, most people don't have any problem with gayness. So you're not even hearing that story anymore. And you're certainly not hearing it attached to Richard Gere. And, and I've, I've read a lot of stories about actual cases of things being stuck up people's rectums, but never a, yeah. a, a, a lot. I mean, even through ostension, as far as I've seen, not a case of an actual gerbil. Yeah, because that's totally animal torture. Right. And mm-hmm. I, and it, <laughs> so. yeah, I mean, the whole idea of it is, is, is rather absurd if you spend any time thinking about it. But, yeah, it's, it's just really strange. But you don't really want to. Well, no. But, I mean, it's again, it's one of those um, – I guess it's using disgust as a factor or something, you know, to try mm-hmm. to, like – it says more about how people think about things they don't know, you know. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. Good point. 
and, and that titillates us too. Anything disgusting yeah. we're excited about. I mean, you know, nobody wants to really talk about many of the political legends right now because we all have a headache. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you well, know, certainly, if you want to step back, you could look at some of the Obama ones. He's from another country. He's Muslim. He's, mm-hmm. I mean, we don't even care about these now, right? <laughs> but we certainly, or somebody They, they about still them. come up. I, I, you know, this is actually kind of ties in with a sort of, uh, a question I had about why do you think people – this is a strange question. Okay, There may not even be an answer. But why do people pass on stories like this, stories that even the smallest amount of research will show is not true? The, the smallest amount of critical thinking will show is not true. But it seems to make people happy in some way. I don't, I don't really understand it. Like uh, why pass these kind of stories on? Um, you know, again, that's going to depend on the story and the community that it's protecting or – um, letting them find a way to discuss things that they can't discuss in another way because it's too close or too frank um, yeah, or yeah. you can't face it. So, you know, um, yeah, a lot of times they're titillating um, or other times they can create um, they can create havoc. I was just thinking of, because you were talking about ostension, a great example of ostension is um, the Amistad, which is the um, the slave the, ship? Yeah, the slave ship, and the guys on board. You know, they've they've gone through this whole middle passage and survived some of them. And um, at one point, one of the sailors brought um, that particular guy, Sinke, up uh, to the galley to help him. And you know, obviously, they weren't speaking the same languages, but he was trying to sign, "What do you want with us?" You know, because they didn't know. Um, why they were kidnapped, what they were on board this ship for. So he's kind of signing, what do you want with us here? And this uh, sailor who was apparently a total asshole, sorry, I can't say that. (laughs) He might bleep it out. Right. This sailor who clearly had no ethics, obviously he was a slaver, um, showed uh, this man the empty barrels that he had in the galley. And then the last barrel, which contained uh, like beef jerky, uh, which was half full. And they were, cause they were nearing the end of the journey and these other barrels were now empty. So he's showing him, well, this is, this is why we need you. We were, oh, we're wow. Yeah. So this apparently is what actually sparked the rebellion on board that ship. And the reason that it was believed was because, uh, in Africa, there were urban legends out there that, these white demons were coming and kidnapping the people and the people must be cannibals. What else, why else would they be taking people and they weren't coming back? Um, and in America, interestingly, there were the exact same parallel legends going on that the Africans were cannibals because, Oh, with some of the tribes, you know, look at their filed teeth, which would have been from a rite of passage or look, they're coming here unclothed because the people didn't take the time to know how, what, how they got there for months on a ship. So um, that was sort of um, uh, for, for the Africans, the cannibalism legends were um, an explanation as to what was happening and a warning to not go near these people. And in America, those cannibalism legends worked as a way to assuage any guilt that you had about enslaving people, because then you're like, well, if they're cannibals, what could be worse? You're eating people. There's nothing worse, right? Yeah. Um, so sometimes legends do have very um, 
interesting psychological functions or societal functions, depending on the group and the story. So are there a lot of urban legends about taboos like cannibalism? Um, probably, depending on the community. Um, I can't think of one right off hand. <laughs> so that, that, that's pretty gross and disgusting. Well, that, that actually makes a good question, though, that, or it ties into a question I already had, which is, yeah. is there a taxonomy in folklore? And if so, how does it work? You mean how do we categorize things? Exactly, yes. Um, well, you know, if, since you're talking about legends, I'll just tell you about the different kind. Uh, like we would look at different narratives. This, I would call, for example, a myth, mythology, if I'm trying to explain it, um, usually people use the word to mean falsehood. In folklore, we would use it to denote a sacred story. So I could call Bible myth. I could call any kind of sacred narrative mythology. Usually it has gods and men. Usually it has um, um, ideology or some kind of explanation for why things are how they came to be. Um, and things that help you create your rituals or your later rules that explain what you're doing and why you're doing it. Um, we would have personal experience narratives would be another kind of folk narrative. So that would be you telling us a story about, um, you know, a lost family fortune or how you lost your virginity. There's types of those. So everything's, there's types of everything. Um, fairy tales um, would be another type of story. Those are not like myths. Those are not myths are told as true. Fairy tales are not. They're told as fantasy. They got fantasy characters. You know, kings, princes, witches. There was even talking spit in one that I read about, where you know the the spit, the wife spit followed the philandering husband around. So you know, all sorts of wow. fantasy <laughs> things. And and those stories have they could have a moral or a lesson, but they don't. Um, they're not told as being true. So if you have a myth, it is told as being true. Although you may recognize, as most of us now do, the um, metaphorical or allegorical truth rather than wanting to accept mythical truth as uh, some kind of literal truth. Right. Okay. Yeah. What kinds of things are there that can clue in a reader or a listener uh, that a story is actually an urban legend or, or folklore? Um, you know, <laughs> yeah, there is something that sets your meter off, isn't there? There is. I, I don't know what it is, but like some elements seem to for me, you know, like yeah. the lack of names sometimes for me, but that's... Or changing names. Yeah, <laughs> yeah changing, changing details. Characters. Right. I mean, there was a, last year I went on a TV show, they um, uh, asked me to talk about it was about UFOs coming out of tornadoes or something like that. Oh, wow. Ooh. Instead of sharks, that's quite an improvement. Instead <laughs> <laughs> of sharks, so I was like, okay, sure. Real. <laughs> two days before, they sent me some, you know, will you look at the Vimanas and the Mahabharata and all these different Indian stories and tell us about this UFO and that UFO. And I was like, what? Okay, so I started looking and... I, I just thought, I don't remember UFOs in these stories. I read them a long time ago. Mm-hmm. So I started looking. And first I came across YouTube videos from, like, ancient aliens and stuff. Yes. <laughs> and there were all these guys who I've met at UFO conferences and stuff who are awesome. But they were all repeating this thing about there being UFOs and proof in this story, in this book, and proof here and proof there. And I was like, what? And then I found, like, two other TV shows proof of this and the diagrams. I'm like, what? I know that's not there. 
my, you know, baloney meter is, is ringing. And I kept going and I found like literally like 50 mentions on the internet about this book and how it talks about, um, has the plans for these UFOs and blah, blah, blah. And they're 3000 years old and like 3000 years old, like really? So I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking, it took me like, I swear, like 14, 15 hours to finally track it down. It took so long. I couldn't find it. And I finally found um, what, someone had had copied this book and posted it somewhere, pages down somewhere. And what it was was in the preface to this book, some guy's writing in 1919, that it was updated in 1969, post-Roswell, that they got this information about these UFOs from a 3000 year old mystic being channeled by some guy. (laughs) So everybody's talking about this 3000 year old UFO diagrams on TV and everything that's actually, you know, being channeled from some guy. Well, that doesn't count. We we now call that being history channeled by some guy. (laughs) (laughs) It just does not count. So yeah, sometimes you just, yeah. Sometimes you just have to do the research um, to find it. And I, and I still, I went, I went to be interviewed. It was like the next day after I'd done all this research. I'm like, so tell us about the UFOs. I'm like, Ugh. I can't do that. <laughs> there's no UFOs. Um, you know, and in the Mahabharata, yeah, there's these great flying ships, but that's totally um, uh, mythical. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was some great detective work. But, I mean, but it's obvious detective work, right? But, well, you would hope so. But, I mean, even in uh, – they used to have a TV show called Project Blue Book that came out in the 70s. And they – it starts off by saying, Ezekiel saw the wheel. And then yeah, shows, Ezekiel it, did see the wheel. And, said, and this is the wheel he saw. And then it shows a picture of a spaceship. <laughs> <laughs> did it have the, you know, the It weird- was like the 2001 rot- rotating space station kind of picture. So if, if, if memory serves, which it sometimes does. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, the, the description of that thing with the eyeballs and the spokes. And, I mean, that's really freaky. and. Yeah, freakish. It's not something that you really want to see because it was like a living, gross thing. But it was also, that was his vision. He didn't see it, right? Yeah. If if I recall. So, you know, I can envision lots of things. Well, I mean, mm-hmm. it's pretty clear he's talking about a mystical vision, not a literal, like, you know, physical vision. Yeah, yeah. So. Okay. Yeah. And there's, I mean, way back in the, gosh, I want to say 1830s or 40s, there was a guy... Um, named Carl von Sito, who was a German philologist, um, who coined, who this talked about, this is a family show. It's a family. <laughs> he, he talked about mythology as being, he called it solar mythology. He said, every single narrative exists in order to explain language. So his idea was that, um, people told stories about why things were in the heavens the way they were, why things were flying or appearing or what shooting stars were, etc. And then they would, um, and then people are stupid, so they forgot why they named things that way. And then later on, they, or so, you know, if language is male or female, like Luna is female words for the moon. So then later on, a century or two later, they create myths to explain why these, why the moon is female, for example, or something. He called it solar mythology, that all mythology had to do with um, the heavenly objects and us trying to explain why they were there. Um, and, you know, most people's, oh, okay, some myths are that way, but most aren't. But, right, yeah, know, that's what I'm like, thinking, right? <laughs> yeah, most aren't, and, you know, but it, it, it nicely wraps up uh, Ezekiel. 
(laughs) (laughs) And there we go. You know, UFOs, which, which I, you know, generally believe in on the whole, but Ezekiel or, or UFOs? The UFOs. Okay. But, but, but not in, uh, yeah, ancient Indian, um, 3000 year old, um, blueprints for building a spaceship, which, you know, aren't real. Right. So, so that's, <laughs> what is that? The, I hear cultural appropriation used a lot, but it's usually like when someone in a famous wears something from a culture they're not a part of. But this is also some sort of at least cultural misappropriation to sort of tell other people that their myths are based on ancient real events, isn't it? Mm. Maybe. Or I'm, I'm wrong there. So. I, no, you're, you're not wrong. I mean, cultural appropriation is such a weird thing to talk about anyway. It is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe outside the scope of what we should talk about. Uh, it's not outside the scope of anything, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, especially now when we're a lot of our narratives have to do um, with what Muslims are and are not, and what they are doing and who's doing it. You know, in America, there's a lot of urban legends about that. And um, no, I mean, I people forget when you're calling out cultural appropriation that culture changes. Yes, it does. Yeah. Um, all the time. So everything that we do um, is influenced by something else. I'll give you, I mean, today I took my class. I have a, one of my classes is called Modern Mysticism in the Afterlife because I'm obsessed with afterlife stuff. And uh, we went to the Hollywood Forever Cemetery today and um, we were planning an altar we're going to build there for their annual Day of the Dead festival which is pretty cool it's got like 20,000 people it's crazy it's like an amazing festival but I was trying to discuss Day of the Dead with them um, because it is a Hispanic holiday but it's a syncretic holiday you know it moved from um, uh, from Rome to England to uh, what was then called the New World and combined with Aztec beliefs um so it wouldn't exist without any of those elements. And so it's syncretic. A lot of what we do is a combination of cultures and, and culture changes. It doesn't freeze. And if you ever, you know, your grandma or whoever might go back to wherever they're from, Lithuania, and be like, oh, my gosh, it's so different, you know, so that the traditions they're holding so tightly to here aren't even a thing over there anymore. Right. Um, so, you know, everything changes all the time. One day I, when I was teaching at UCLA some years ago, I still remember it was a great big hall of like 300 people. They do a very third wall there. So you're up on kind of a, a stage, you know, so you can't really talk to your students very well in that. And uh, I still remember this girl got up. She had she was blonde and she had very long um, braided hair. And she got up and walked out in the middle of the lecture for whatever reason and then after that, there was like this buzzing for 10 minutes over on the side. So I just stopped class. I'm like, what's going on here? And it was a group of African-American students were highly offended that this girl had these braids. And I still remember the one thing um, one of one of the people said was that, you know, it's not good enough that they take, you know, all of our culture. They're taking our hair, too. You know, and it was really interesting. So I stopped class and we talked about that. And I had a class at Otis, which is an art college, a few hours later after that class. So I left and I got to Otis, and I think it was an anthropology of religion class. And I said, hey, I'm, I'm really disturbed. This thing just happened. And, you know, uh, what do you guys think? What would you think of a, a blonde 
probably white girl. I don't know. I know a, a blonde black woman who looks white. That, so that we're all making assumptions there too, but probably white woman who had braids. Um, and they were like, well, what's the problem? And I'm like, well, do you see a problem with cultural appropriation? And they were like, no, man, it's art. So <laughs> I was really struck by that. You know, it's all about where you're coming from and um, what your perspective is, whether you see something as, well, as appropriation. At first, when you were talking about braids, I was thinking plaits. <laughs> so oh, yeah. I, was, I was even thinking in, in terms of a different thing. <laughs> yeah. So, but speaking about the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, I really would love to get there. There are lots of great ghost stories, Blake. Yeah. You know, and they won't allow ghost hunting there either. Good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They don't want, if their spirits are there, they don't want them disturbed. And they do, I mean, they do wild things. They do day the dead. Everyone's tromping on the graves mm-hmm. and running around. Um, but it's a joyous celebration um, that's meant to bring whoever you're honoring back. They're supposed to smell the marigolds and the incense and come on back and get their tequila or wine and food that you've laid out and, and party with you for the night. So it's, it's, a, it's a great uh, life cycle kind of uh, event. I love it. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing. And I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. We've got a podcast recommendation I think will be really fun and or useful for Monster Talk listeners. I Know Dino, the big dinosaur podcast. Studying dinosaurs can teach us about the prehistoric world, but also the world of today. For example, migration patterns of dinosaur lineages can tell us about the Earth's changing continents. Climate models of dinosaur ecosystems help us understand global warming. Studying dinosaur diets can help show the link between plant and animal evolution. Talk about paleo. Hmm. In many dinosaur (laughs) injuries, paleopathologies are the first known occurrences of diseases. A new episode of I Know Dino comes out every week with new dinosaur discoveries you won't hear about anywhere else. You can find I Know Dino on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So I'm actually, I'm very interested in the the parts of culture um, or the the way that that every aspect of culture seems to be dependent upon the ability to copy things, right? So, (laughs) I mean, that's, I mean, everything, I mean, technological advances, language, all, all these things, they, they have to have this sort of human ability to mimic. And it seems to be natural. And, it, and kind of going back to the why do people pass on the stories and the cultural appropriation aspects, it seems yeah. like everything is is in some sense destined to blend uh, the, and now more than ever, right? So Now more than ever because it's just a click away. Right. It is that you want. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's no... 
there's no stopping it and everywhere they have so that, and some of the most obscure things in my vampire class i make them do a field work project now why that's something i couldn't have required in the past every student can find a vampire online to talk to they so, can't yeah yeah that's <laughs> vampire wild. class well i was gonna say the, the, this is so fascinating because I'm, I'm trying to put myself in a you know i'm a white guy yeah from the south and yeah. You know, uh, at this time, I don't really feel like, I mean, uh, there's not anything that makes me particularly unique or that I identify as my cultural identity because everything seems like it's mine, right? Which is, I mean, you know what I mean? But like, I'm trying to think, like, I just came back from a science fiction and fantasy convention and I'm trying to imagine what it would be like. If for me to go to a business meeting, Dragon if, Con. Well, I, I, oh, but I think it, go, no, I, go, I go somewhere and I see somebody who clearly knows nothing about Star Trek wearing Spock ears, right? right. That, that's, that's the closest I can come to imagining what it's like to have my culture appropriated. It's ridiculous, but I can kind of see where it'd be like that's not authentic. You know, that's not an authentic yeah. fan. And but then it becomes authentic over time. And- well, I mean, they have as much right to do that as me in real life. But I'm just trying to think about how that must feel. It must be terrible. To, to, I mean, if you if what identifies you and makes you feel part of a community is being just blatantly used by someone else, I could see where that would be problematic. I'm just, it's just, it's not something that comes up in my life because I live in this weirdly, you know, Walmarty, you know, cookie cutter world where everything is the same. I, I doubt if everything is the same, particularly if you're in the South. Um, with your food and your your idioms and your language. Oh, yeah. I I went out west and tried a, 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 I'm going to call it Mexican food called machacas, which I could only find west of Texas. Okay. And and it was this amazing, uh, I think they dry the beef and then re-moisten it when they cook it. So it's like, Mm, it's uh, it's really tasty. And, but they don't have it here. And I'm trying to think, other than that, I really haven't found anything out west that I couldn't find right here in Georgia. So, uh, Sad, right? I mean, it is because I really there like what more differences yeah. wherever we go. Yeah, uh, um, but is homogeneity the our our destiny? God, I hope not. Who someone wrote books about that? Ian, someone or another. I, um, yeah, there was a door. You could. It was like instant transportation. You take the door to get anywhere in the universe, and everything is the same. Ugh. Wow. Kind of happening. Starbucks, McDonald's. Oh, I know. I mean, yeah. If you go to Modesto, I was in Dubai this year and they had every store I've ever seen in England or America, everyone, um, because they have these giant malls. So you can only really see the differences when you leave the mall. Right, right, right. I was in Bahrain in in the 90s and it was the same. They were quickly becoming that way. You could get KFC or Burger King, you know, and... I mean, the big difference was there's prayer calls five times a day and it was really right. hot. But other than that, I mean, it was. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. And, and it's a little bit terrifying. Um, but yet we are so different in so many ways in terms of our beliefs and the things that, that we do. But, you know, a smile is a smile. and Everybody has stories. Yeah. We just there's plenty of differences still. I hope so. What? <laughs> let's, let's see how long. In <laughs> a century, we may say something else. And I'll be here because I'll be a vampire. So Neat. <laughs> <laughs> I'll attend some of your classes. They sound really fun. Thank you. Thank you. They've got to be fun because that's how, if, if, if people are being lectured to or mm-hmm. at, they don't listen. It's just, yeah. you might as well just give them notes. 
You know, <laughs> you got you to gotta have a class that's fun and interesting and gets to the root of the human condition or the inhuman condition, as it were. Well, and I suppose you could always tell a story if things get boring, right? So I can tell the story, but so can they. I mean, you know, now, now every class is a discussion. There's no lecturing anymore. That, that kind of model is sort of gone out of the university, thank God. You know, it's, it's more about having a, having a sort of guided discussion, doing a project. Being interactive. Um, so it seems like a lot of people associate folklore with fiction. They think folklore is just, just is not true. But then on the other hand, uh, a lot of people seem to think that there are always truths behind urban legends and behind folklore. Um, so, so which is it? Do there have to be facts behind every legend? No. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> no, there don't. But um, frequently... It's the way a community has of dealing with some kind of issue um, or problem or, um, you know, um, the KKK owns Popeye's fried chicken or something like that, you know. And the idea behind that story is, well, we didn't or, – or the KKK, weren't there, wasn't there a KKK on marble cigarettes for a while? Something like that. People used to try to show me where they were. Oh, no, but I think the Satanists aren't they behind just about every major corporation? Right, well, right. Satan's there. You know, everybody's there. You know, I remember Parker and Gamble facts lore, right? That, so that was the thing. Yeah, the Church of Satan, and yeah, <laughs> yeah, which had like sixty-four members. You know, they were a teeny weeny little group in in the Bay Area, and so they, you know, all those things exist for a reason. So, is um, are cigarettes or Popeye's fried chicken good for you? Do they um, advertise extensively in your african-american community with giant billboards are they expensive are they a waste of money so the idea is in that sense those narratives exist to protect the community because then you're not any longer going to go get your marble cigarettes and your popeye's fried chicken so you could say that sometimes there are uh, narratives that you would just see as fun or funny but maybe they exist to actually make a point mm-hmm. and it may be you know I don't know anything about the KKK. Did they have anything to do with, with marble? Probably not. Um, although I'm sure lots of other nasty types did. Um, and generally they're bad for you. So that if that narrative worked for someone to stop smoking, that's great. It seems like it would be hard to smoke with those hoods on. I think it would. <laughs> it's a very practical concern. <laughs> you do those e-cigarettes with that? And then, and then Maybe. do e-cigarettes have any harm? Everyone I know tells me no. Is that an urban legend? I don't know. Mm. Do research Exactly. Well, yeah. the, the, I guess the jury's out on that one, but uh, that's a good lesson to do. Do your research on everything. Yeah. So, so <laughs> a lot of folklore seems to supersede fact. I mean, and I mean things like Snopes exist um, yeah. to to look up for those who would bother. Um, Snopes is phenomenal. I think it's a great resource, and you know, when my um, one of my uncles put up some really like salacious stuff about Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. I, you know, posted the, the Snopes article that showed that that was just not anything near truth. But then he countered with a whole different article about how Snopes is some kind of. Yes. Communist. Yes. Yes. yes, yes. Right. Thingy. So it's, which was another great urban legend. So I just thought, well, <laughs> I, I guess maybe this fits into what you said earlier. People would say friend of a friend, 
to give it veracity or this my mother's friend did this or my cousin's friend did this or you know give it some cred right but check this out have you ever considered you probably have because it's your field but all these sort of email based uh rumors that that are not based in fact many of them now say this is true check it out on snopes and they have a link at the bottom and the link always just goes to snopes.com not any actual article I haven't right. seen that yet. Yeah, Tricky. I've seen it a lot because I have a lot of relatives who still send me stuff. <laughs> yeah, because because at the end of the day, the word is the thing, right? So even though you, folklore is oral in, in that it exists in variation and can change rapidly and constantly, um, and, and the Internet is largely oral in that sense, but we still respect the written word. We feel like if it's written down, it must be true. Mm-hmm. So that that's what that is. I think that that's just another bit of circumstantial evidence that tells you something is true. This is a show about monsters. What monsters? are some of the, the scariest monster-type urban legends that you know about or have heard about? Oh, God. I, I, we, we have a very broad understanding of the word monster, by the way. So, you know, anything could be It could be humans. <laughs> I mean, those, those are the scariest monsters for sure, you mm-hmm. know. Um, the people that come in your window at night, but, um, you know, I, I, most people wouldn't consider this a monster. If you go to like a UFO conference or something, there's, you know, the people who are like, Oh, I was sitting on top of, you know, Mount Shasta doing yoga when the ship descended and they talked to me and let me know, you know, so there's those people who, love the UFOs and, and tell you their experiences are, you know, like rainbows and unicorns. And then there's the others who talk about, you know, we're star children with the DNA of the, of the, um, of, of the aliens and all this kind of thing here to fix the earth. And then there's those people who are like experiencers who mm-hmm. have been abducted. Right. And whether it's, um, literal abduction or whatever, those people look haunted. Those people, when you meet them, they have astonishing stories. Their experiences are not good. And they're like, truly like, um, you know, they're almost like rape victims or something. They are like, they've experienced the worst of the worst. So, I want to say when you say what's the scariest monster stories, it's it's experiencers who have their abduction narratives. Um, whether again, whether factual or not, doesn't really matter in the sense that people have gone through something that is so horrifying that they look like that. Yeah, that's. That, I I think we. Po- I hope. I hope in the course of our show, when we've talked about these kind of topics, where people have clearly had horrific experiences. Whether they're real or not, if, if, you know, a lot of things are not verifiable scientifically, but people still have the memories, right? And yeah. uh, I, oh, I, yeah. have, I have nothing but sympathy for those people. And, and uh, you know. Well, if they've uh, seen a therapist who's implanted memories, yeah. it would seem very real. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's yeah. got to be horrific. Uh, it's, it's possible. I had uh, a, um, a woman I met who, I don't even know if I should say this on the podcast I'll go for it she um one of my students found her um as a vampire when he was doing his field work and she came and I invited her to lecture to our class and uh was she a sanguinarian or a psychic vampire she was saying okay she um but she told us this whole story of her you know awakening 
when she was a teen being a vampire, she said that her mom had converted, I can't remember to what it was, if it was maybe Seventh-day Adventist or something like that, or maybe it was Jehovah's. But So her mom used to leave her with these two boys to um, babysit because they were also of the same religion, so it would be fine, you know. Then you trust nothing, them. Could, nothing could possibly go wrong. Nothing. She tells the story of when they tied her to this chair for a couple days and repeatedly cut her and sucked her blood so that she would have her awakening because clearly... They sensed she was about to be awakened as they were vampires too. And, you know, that she was very angry with them for like a decade after that. But, you know, they're still family through the blood and all this kind of thing. You know, obviously my first thought is that's one big masked rape narrative, but I couldn't, Mm -hmm. you can't say that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Is that really how you remember that? You know, it's just an awful story, no matter what. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, sometimes the the story is true. It's just a different kind of truth um, that you can translate or face, or that really happened, as she said it did. I don't know. Yeah, I'll, I will never know. And she probably won't either. Yeah, that's yeah. Cool. With instances like that, um, you just accept the stories as you hear them, or is there some way you try to reach out to these people to, to help them on some level, or? Well, if I'm if I'm collecting field work, you know, usually <clears throat> people will ask you when they're telling you stories, um, do you believe me? Mm-hmm. You know, um, or do you believe in um, you know aliens, or do you believe in whatever it is? And I have to give my honest answer, which is that I don't not believe. That's okay. Um, I think that if someone's spending the time with you. They're due the respect of an honest answer. And I'm not necessarily a a believer or not. I'm interested in, you know, um, why people do what they do and why they believe what they believe more than I'm interested if it's um, literal truth, which I assume many times it's not. Maybe sometimes it is. Um, Keeping an open mind. Yeah. I mean, people don't lie. So you can't say you're making that up. I mean, some people lie. Yeah. But. I think the majority of people um, have experiences and they want to share them. They don't want to create something. Um, And those experiences may or may not be the way they interpreted them. Um, Let's say you see a small thing and you are in 16th century Wales. You're going to interpret that small thing to be a fairy. And now you're going to interpret that small thing to be a gray alien. And somebody else at some other time is going to interpret that small thing to be a shadow. I don't know. Right, right, right. No, I think that's right. Cultural context has a big impact on the way you interpret the things you see and experience. We talk about that a lot on the show. Yeah. And I, and I think that's true, but never would I say to someone, um, you know, are you making that up? Cause I'm, I just assume they're not. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating. And, and I, I, I try not to be judgmental when I meet people who want to tell me a story about something they've experienced because I, I wasn't there. You know, mm-hmm. I, I could, if they ask me for a, a, a skeptical explanation, I mean, maybe yeah, that's could, different. That's different. But, <laughs> you know, that it, it's there's so many questions that you have to look at. And most of the time, you're just never going to know. Right. I mean, it, because it's in the past. And unless there's some kind of record, 
Yeah. Or you can seek out the experience too. Um, well, there's that, but you know, yeah, yeah, difficult to replicate. Yeah, well, and that isn't that what a lot of ghost hunting and Bigfoot hunting is? I mean, it's people trying to replicate the experiences they've read about. Absolutely. Well, Bigfoot hunting is like nobody has ever seen anything ever. <laughs> Bigfoot hunting, and and let me just say the Bigfoot, which my husband believes in because he wants to. I think that's that's the most problematic of all these stories because Bigfoot is supposed to be this gigantic primate. So there has to be bones if you die. There have to be bones. That's the biggest problem. There's no bones unless they're all, you know... They die and then they cremate in the forest. Well, they, uh, the, their, the believer's explanation is that they bury their dead is one. I, 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 over well, the they go to a different plane. Well, well that, if, if you're a paranormal Bigfoot believer, then, yeah, they, they, they live in a different plane. Hyperdimensional, yeah. Right. And then huh. there's, okay, okay, I'll go with that. And then there's the uh, cannibals, and I guess they eat the entire bone, too. <laughs> that explanation. <laughs> the fur? The yeah, fur? The fur. <laughs> delicious fur. I mean, mm-hmm. I, it, like soup out of it. I would say it just it's worth mentioning. I, I, you know, I, this show is really about folklore. This episode, I mean, not not Bigfoot. But while we're talking about, it, I'll mention there's always room for Bigfoot. Yeah, there is apparently. <laughs> I'll, I'll mention that there there are bones found of bears. That seems to be like a common. Let's call that a myth. It's not really religious, but <laughs> or okay. is it? Or is it? I don't know. But uh, <laughs> there are bones found of bears frequently. Uh, you just have to go look for them. Uh, and I don't mean like individuals. I mean, you can go find like state game departments, keep track of bears being killed and people finding bear carcasses. It happens all the time. Pennsylvania is a great state full of bears. Uh, mm-hmm. And their state has reports of how often they find them. And and if you want to think about the, the, the claim that there are no bones found in like Washington State, the Pacific Northwest, instead of looking for Bigfoot bones when you do your Google search, Look for human skeletal remains found in the forests of Washington State, and you'll find plenty of skeletons being found. So, yeah. So, not that it's a dangerous state. I'm just saying they do. But I mean, but they don't seem to find anything. I watch Finding Bigfoot on occasion. Nine seasons. (laughs) I don't know how many. I can't believe how many seasons. But they're out there going or whatever. there's never anything, and then they hear something go like this, and they're like, that was a clear knock on the tree communication. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the ghost hunters, they've got something different because they do get EVPs. It's just they can't identify what the EVPs actually are. Yeah. Um, so, well, they find, I, so I, I would not discount the, the legitimate, if, if there is such a thing, Bigfoot hunters. They go out in the woods and they look, and sometimes they find tracks, sometimes they find fur. So yeah. far, it's all come back as negative, but I, I don't want to dismiss that their efforts are well-intentioned. But I, I think like this, like the ghost hunters, they're all doing something that's not scientific, you know. But they are all seeking a truth in the best way that they know how. Yeah, and, and you know, it shows the the need right now, especially with all these reality shows that societally we need some form of either whimsy or mystery at the moment. Um, reality is yeah. not really cutting it for most of us. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, this Escapism. is some kind of, yeah, it's, I mean, it's certainly answering a need. Um, so, well, and the ghost hunters ties into your other interest, doesn't it? It's like what happens after we die, right? All the time. Yeah. So, <laughs> all the time. And, you know, I've seen some really interesting things. A, a ghost hunter friend of mine went to another friend's house and he put just put, I think it was my flashlight up on the... Um, oh, was he asking questions to the flashlight and they went on yeah. and off? Yeah. That, 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 
That's a classic. <laughs> is it a classic? How do you do that? Uh, you know what? Um, it is outside the scope of uh, our interview, but I will. I'll send you some articles about it, and I'll, and I'll put them in the show notes too. But uh, it's, it, it's a well-known uh, effect. It's interesting, and it's something you can duplicate. But it involves preparing the flashlight to be very. Uh, if if I remember correctly, I'll tell you that it involves the temperature rising and falling on the on the flashlight. Uh, like the, oh. But well, we the, should. Yeah. Also put in some stuff about EVPs as well, I sure, think. Sure, why not? Well, let's load up yeah. those notes. Well, sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, I like the EVPs. The EVPs fascinate me, and I love well, listening they're, they're to them. They're fun. I mean, they tell a story. Yeah. There's no oh, yeah. This is Mildred Smith, and I died in a factory fire. She's going, go away. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Help me. Well, Help me. And everyone's yeah. interpreting them differently. It's the, yeah. uh, it's the, exactly. It's, it's, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, the, the skeptical interpretation of EVPs is always that it's a form of pareidolia. We're finding patterns, you know, and it's all human voices yeah, or, or human voices or other effects. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And the, yeah, but, there's subjective interpretations, but yeah, we've, we've got a few more questions that we should hit. Yeah. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let me go next. Yeah, this one's your question. Oh, it is. So, so I've seen you on MythBusters and other shows. In fact, uh, I don't remember the name of the show, but you were on a myth show about or, or an urban legend show in the '90s, uh, and and they would do reenactments, and I really enjoyed that show, but I can't remember the name of it. Oh, I did a few of those. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I, that was an important show to me because in one of the episodes, they talked to Michael Shermer about. Um, sleep paralysis and that was uh, if my memory is correct oh. that was how i figured out what was going on with what i thought was my own personal haunting oh yeah which one was that I can't, uh, I can't remember i would have it in my notes i couldn't recall i was like trying to find it uh, yeah that is super fascinating i, I love that i love i mean hanging um is a uh, if, if i ask a group a group of students usually about 10 percent of them will say that they've had that happen where they're lying on their back or their side and they feel something, a weight on their chest. And, um, there's something there that is, um, they believe to be paranormal. And, you know, like my friend Gary, who it happened to, he said it was definitely aliens. Um, but often people, they used to ascribe it to witches. Right. Incubus, um, hagging. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or hat. Yeah. The old hag or demons. Um, and, you know, I, I meet students who tell me their uncle died of it when they were in China or in Vietnam or Laos. You hear some really interesting stories, um, particularly from communities that really did believe in it in Cambodia and Laos. Um, at, pretty much everyone claims someone's died from that. So, Well, uh, if you die in your sleep, I mean, it seems like, and you know that that is a thing that can happen. It, it, it's not crazy to put those things together. You know? Link them things yeah. up. You're just gonna die. So, <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know. I hope not. But but, I, but my actual question was this: oh, Did yeah. you feel like you were able to get all your ideas out successfully in the shows? Was there anything you wanted to share about the field of folklore or or legends that you didn't feel like got out successfully that you'd like to use our show as a way to talk about? I don't know. I mean, every single thing is a different subject, and sometimes um, you know, usually someone will call and go, "Can you talk about Atlantis?" Sure. You know, and that's great. And it's so much fun because that means I get to obsess about Atlantis for a couple weeks um, and learn everything there is to know about Atlantis and why it's actually not in the Caribbean. Um, but um, usually they'll, they'll, they'll take me for a few hours and then they'll be, you know, like a minute on there. So of course there's nothing I get out, you know, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I really want to say, but that's, that's show to show. And, 
Mm-hmm. I, I don't care. I'm just happy that um, people want to talk to a folklorist and, and talk about folklore and um, get people's curiosity sparked. That's what's exciting about it to me. So, you know, I, I do that any day of the week. Well, so this is this is a good lead into this other question that I had, which is we talked to a guy named Joe Laycock, who is a religious studies professor, and he mentioned that a lot of folklorist departments or folklore departments are shutting down on campuses. Is 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 that something you've experienced, or is is, is something? Yeah. What, what's happening with the field? Is that something yeah. you talk about? Uh, it's it's endangered. <laughs> okay. Um, you know. And I almost went into religious studies. That's interesting. But the, uh, the the department I graduated from at UCLA is gone. Mm. They got it, – it was a terrible, shameful administrative decision. Most of the graduate students actually had books published while they were still students, myself included. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was shameful. And I, I think part of it was about money. Someone had given a lot of money to build a dance building. But dance wasn't really a PhD, so what do you do? So they called it World Arts, Cultures, and Dance. And so the World Arts and Cultures part was the folklore. So they stuffed those guys in there until they retired, and then I don't think there's any folklorists left over there. I think it's a misunderstanding of the word folklore. I think there were a lot of demands from different ethnic groups that wanted ethnic studies departments. Um, and so some of those professors had to go teach in those departments. I think um, cultural studies arose, um, which is not nearly as interesting as folklore, but it's out there. And I think that took some of the people. And I think, um, interestingly, administrators didn't see it as something sexy or current enough. In point of fact, it's something that has become more current in terms of pop culture, which is not what it was before. So, um Usually you would have it, it would be backwards. Pop culture is before academia. In this case, academia was before pop culture. So, um, yeah, I think there's only one PhD offered in the States anymore at Penn, uh, at Indiana, sorry, at Indiana University. Penn got rid of theirs. UCLA got rid of theirs. There's still some masters out there, um, somewhere in Kansas, Berkeley, um, Utah, in Logan. Um, but if you want to get a PhD, you're kind of tied to one university? Yeah, or you go abroad. You go wow, wow. Something. Okay, so the folklorists are still around. They're just going into different areas and different departments. I think they have to. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, if you go to a folklore convention, they're wild and wonderful. And those people know some crazy stuff. <laughs> you know, you have more interesting conversations than over drinks with folklorists who, you know, are marching with Skull and Bones gangs in in New Orleans at Mardi Gras, who are you know, at folk music festivals and who are, um, you know, following tattoo artists around and graffiti artists in the middle of the night. And God knows what, you know, they're doing great field work and they're talking about what people are, what, relevant things, what people are doing and why they're doing it, what, you know, um, stories mean what people's actions mean. So it's all super important. Um, and, uh, you know, my, my colleagues that I have, they're pretty fantastic. And, uh, you know, I, I respect the work that, that they do. So, you know, it's a shame that it, that it's going, but I, I, you know, there's still people who are interested in this may or may not go into yeah, religious studies or something. Um, Maybe it doesn't offer the same versatility. If I was in religious studies, I couldn't really probably look at urban legends or, you know, um, 
or body piercings. Unfortunately, I would have to stick to religion in this way. You know, you sort of have a lot more. Yeah. We're glad you're doing this and we're we're glad we found you for the show. Right. I'm just kind of shocked by the whole, that whole uh, revelation, honestly, because it seems like with the advent of the internet, the, the ways that people can spread folklore has expanded uh, exponentially and really, I mean, just absurdly that the, right. you think there'd be more of a demand for it. Right. So cataloging yeah. it, I mean, I don't think we should rely on Google to be our archivists, right. For all that sort of uh, collected information. Wouldn't that be you- And there's no good analysis. You don't know. What no, exactly. And because of course, collecting is only the first part of any academic discipline. After that, it's trying to, you research it and then you make meaning of it and apply some kind of concept and try to figure out why it's there, what it means. Yeah, to give it the cultural context and, and, and that sort of thing. So, yeah. All right. We've got one final question. Yes. Uh, we I like have- to ask all of our guests who come on the show, what's your favorite monster? You know, the easy answer would be the vampire, but I really had to think about this. I'm thinking about it and I really think it's the wizard. Ooh. Okay. We haven't had that before. No, okay. <laughs> no. Well, I, I was thinking, what, what's you know, a vampire can really be vanquished, and I know all the ways from the hawthorn stake to the seeds on the ground. <laughs> I know every way to vanquish a vampire. I'm good, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not scared of those guys. Um, but the wizard, you know, which if you asked me when I was 13 what I wanted to be. That's what I would have said. But if you think about it, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that's what wizards have. Therefore, if there are wizards who are monsters, they are all billionaires with no ethics, <laughs> running the world and creating wonderful conspiracy theories that reflect <laughs> from them. Therefore... It's the wizard. We weren't <laughs> going to talk about politics. <laughs> That's fantastic. I love it. Yeah. It's one cons- conspiracy theory. That's all right. <laughs> I really appreciate you talking with me. Yeah. We could Thank you so much for your time. Hour. I swear this was great. So You guys are fun. And so you, made, you gave me a happy hour. Thank you. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk. I'm Karen Stoltzner. And I'm Blake Smith. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views expressed on this show are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Skeptic Society or of Skeptic Magazine. If you want to know the real opinions of Skeptic Magazine, you could look at that tattered copy in the veterinarian's office while they take a look at that strange and sickly dog that you brought back from Mexico. Or you could subscribe digitally and perhaps avoid that hook-handed killer who's still upset about how you drove off in a rush the other night. Go to Skeptic.com to learn more. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as a donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. 
Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Here's a quick reminder about a huge skeptics conference coming up in October. The Committee for Skeptical Inquiry is hosting SciCon 2016 in Las Vegas. Go to csiconference.org for more details. But the guest list is amazing. you got James Randi, Massimo Polidoro, Elizabeth Loftus, Ray Hyman, Joe Nickel, Eugenie Scott, Lawrence Krauss. Look, the list is just full of awesome people. Go check it out. That's csiconference.org in Las Vegas, October 27th through the 30th, 2016. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thanks again for listening. Did you know that you can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally? Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com slash magazine slash app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content. Hi. <laughs> All right. So um, I'm going to do a brief interview, and if I say anything wrong or need to correct anything, let me know. Sure. Okay. So Heather Witham is an associate professor at the Otis College of Art and Design in Los Angeles. She has so it's, Heather, it's actually Heather Joseph Witham. Did I just say Witham? I was so concerned about saying Witham properly that I just <laughs> skipped, skipped the first part. <laughs> so, Take two. Yeah, we'll do it again. Heather Joseph Witham is an associate professor at the Otis College of Art and Design in Los Angeles. She has a PhD in folklore from UCLA. So you'd actually say folklore mythology because believe it or not, that was the name of the department. Sure. Okay. Okay. Hold on just a second. And and a bird. <laughs> so she has a. Hold on a second. Wait for the bird. Wait for the bird. Oh, you know what? It doesn't matter. I can edit the bird out. So 